Hello, you're listening to a Navarra Media special podcast. I'm James Butler, senior editor here at Navarra Media, and this episode marks the beginning of some of the coverage we'll be running of The World Transformed and its Take Back Control tour around the country. The Take Back Control tour obviously takes its title from the slogan adopted by the Brexiteers during their successful referendum campaign, and we'll be talking a bit about that choice and the thinking behind it today, as well as the project's ambitious goals with events scheduled in Sunderland, Barnsley, Croydon, Hastings and Bradford, among others. Uh, I'm joined in the Navarra studios by Joe Todd, one of the World Transformed organisers, uh, by Hilary Wainwright, who is part of the editorial collective of Red Pepper magazine and a renowned sort of left-wing thinker and commentator, uh, as well as by independent researcher and activist Christine Berry, who is formerly of the New Economics Foundation and Share Action. Thank you for joining me. So I suppose we'll dive right in. There's a lot to talk about here, both in terms of the framing of these events and the wider issues that they bring up. But first up, Joe, uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit, because uh, I'm sure it'll be opaque to some of our listeners. Uh, what and who is uh, The World Transformed? Is it the Labour Party? Is it Momentum? Is it something else? It's something entirely separate? Uh, we're all a bit in between, I suppose. Uh, so we're an organisation that kind of grew out of Momentum after the last Labour Party conference. So we put on a big kind of like open sprawling fringe festival there, which was by most accounts pretty successful. And we wanted to do something in the intervening period uh, before Brighton, um, before the next conference. Um, obviously Brexit happened and we were basically like, oh shit, we need to do something intelligent and interesting on this. Um, lots of thought and lots of kind of like narrative work went in, into it. And someone eventually came up with a rather genius idea of doing something called Take Back Control. Um, I don't know if you want me to do the whole spiel now. Or... <laughs> Go on. Why not? Let's do it at um, the top of the show. Yeah, so basically these events, and there are a series of events, are called Take Back Control, organised by local activists in areas that you wouldn't usually expect to find these kind of political events. So you find them, you know, various left fringes alongside Labour Party Conference. You also have these events um, all of the time in central London, in Bristol and elsewhere. But we're doing them in Croydon, in Bradford, in Plymouth, Sunderland, Barnsley, Hastings, um, Dagenham, Norfolk and elsewhere. And the point is really to get interesting political debates and interactive and participatory political debates happening outside of the metropolitan centers um, and we're working very closely with local activists to actually put these on um, but also to really think about what it means to have control and to take back control in the kind of like moment after brexit because our i suppose our core thing with this is that obviously gove and the right came up with the idea or the slogan of taking back control but you can't take back control from migrants and societies most vulnerable because obviously they don't have control and really control should be the ideal frame for the left when talking about the establishment when talking about economic elites and all of that so uh, there's just before we talk about the framing here, because I think it is interesting and that there's a lot of questions that that brings up. Just a little more. I mean, the organisers' background. So you, you say that that it's is it a collaboration between sort of uh, the world transformed and local activists? So so it doesn't run the risk of looking like sort of patronising Londoners landing from 
outer space. We're, <laughs> we're definitely not landing from outer space, um, nor are we landing from Hackney. We, um, we have local groups in each area um, organizing everything on the ground and ultimately everything's up to them. We're coordinating um, the national campaign, um, but the start of the national campaign was us basically doing a call out and saying who wants to do these events. Um, the activists running them are a mixture of kind of local momentum activists, local Labour Party activists, local trade unionists, um, and, you know, people from the general left milieu in each area. I mean, it really is the most exciting thing about these events is that they are going to be radically different in every place we do them, because while they're going to react to kind of like national um, issues and problems that are going on, they're going to be hyper-local at the same time. Um, I mean, Croydon, for instance, our first event on the 8th of April, we've got a uh, Diane, uh, Diane Abbott, Sweater Kinch, the Mercury-nominated jazz musician, and my good fellow, the Guardian journalist, doing a panel about uh, race and immigration and British identity after Brexit, which will be, you know, relevant to stuff that's going on across the country. But then at the same time, we've also got some quite hyper-local um, interactive sessions on uh, transport and housing, because, you know, Croydon is a basically a commuter town situated outside of London where the trains are late, or I think it's like the 8.50, 15 train in the morning is like 80% of the time or something like that. And it's like it's a massive issue for people living locally. They just can't get to work on time. So it's, it's going to be a mixture of the two. So, yeah, let's move on and let's think about this, this, this slogan, this take back control thing. Um, Christine, isn't, is there a risk here of an attempt to kind of ape the clothing of the right, to drag up in their clothing kind of the, the hope of, of delivering a left message? Um, I think the question really is about how you use the language and how you can own that language. Um, so the starting point for me for thinking about this stuff is to really try and understand why the slogan take back control was so successful during the Brexit campaign. And I think most people kind of recognize now that it was so successful because it kind of tapped into a sense of disempowerment and alienation and disenfranchisement um, that absolutely the right shouldn't be allowed to own. You know, whether it's using the language of control or, or whatever else, the left needs to find a way of owning that sense of disempowerment and of persuading people that it's possible to build collective sources of power that can can change that um, and that it's not going to be changed just by, you know, shutting out foreigners or leaving the European Union. Now, obviously, the kind of big challenge, I think, and and the thing that it's really incumbent on us to be mindful of is how we can use that language in a way that is not just implicitly, but very explicitly different from the kind of xenophobic, nationalist, um, anti-immigration, racist narratives that are being put forward by the right. And I'm sure you know we'll talk more as the hour goes on about kind of how we can do that and um, some of the things that we need to be mindful of as we use these kind of frames. Yeah, so, so uh, I mean... One thing on that 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 it strikes me is that this is this is ground that is well conquered by the right, right? So the first act is going to be one of sort of wrenching the definition back. And I wonder is is there something is there something maybe intrinsically nostalgist um, about taking back control and sort of is it is it potentially backward looking? 
So this is a really interesting one. I think I'm sure you guys have had endless debates and I have also with some of the people I organize with about whether to use the back, you know, whether it's inherently reactionary or whether we should just talk about taking control. Um, something I found really interesting in a finding of the Framing the Economy project, which is a project I'm working on with NEON, the Public Interest Research Center and the Frameworks Institute, which is uh, doing some research uh, that we started last year looking at how people think about the economy and how they construct the economy. Um, a finding that I found interesting in this context was that um, people did have what Frameworks Institute called a kind of ideal past model of how, you know, the economy used to be better in the past. But when I actually looked at the things that they'd pulled out from the interviews they did about what people were nostalgic for, it was basically post-war social democracy, right? They were talking about how we used to make things, we used to have a manufacturing base in this town, like people used to have good jobs, there was a sense of community, you could, you know, leave your doors unlocked or you could leave your kids with your neighbours and people looked out for each other. Um, it wasn't so much kind of things used to be better because there was less immigration. Now, obviously, that is very much the kind of narrative that the right is peddling now, but I think it's interesting that kind of the right has managed to own that sense of nostalgia and kind of couple it to this anti-immigration sentiment mm. when really kind of people do have an, an, a kind of instinctive sense of you know the, the reasons why maybe things used to be better or they used to feel they had more control than they do now and I think again you know the real question for us is is it is it possible for the left to kind of own and tap into some of that nostalgia for the post-war period but in a way that is very explicitly not nostalgic for a kind of homogenous white community but is kind of forward-looking and is inclusive and is, you know, about a kind of racially diverse modern Britain and is kind of not just um, avoiding, strengthening those kind of racist narratives, but is actually actively countering them as well. Because there's a, there's a double bind here, isn't there? It's not just that taking back control might be, be thinking about culture and society in a kind of homogenous way. It's also that those... that kind of economic structure is not returning either, right? So the structure of social democracy and particularly the manufacturing structure of social democracy, those kind of jobs, don't seem like they're returning anytime soon. So the question then is, and I want to bring Hillary in here maybe, is what left control might look like, how, uh, how left control might, might actually be thinkable. Yes, okay, so I think I agree very much with, with Christine, um, but I think that... The key thing about the past is not so much, you know, what government was like or what the economy was like, but how what powers people had, how they were organised, what forms of democracy existed, what leverage they had. So, um, you know, there used to be trade unions on a wide scale. Um, in a way, regardless of the question of the kind of jobs. I mean, a lot of manufacturing jobs are completely shitty, you know, working on a... A con, um, you know, an assembly line in Fords or British Leyland or whatever is not, you know, a job to be desired. Um, I mean, it, it, at least it gives you money, but you know, we're not talking about kind of wonderful jobs when we talk about manufacturing. So I think the key thing is more that sense that something could be done. You know, that I think you can, you have this combination of people feeling abandoned by government, by Thatcher, and then by the sort of technocratic elitism of Blair, but at the same time feeling they don't have any of the sort of levers or collective centres of power, you know, which is not necessarily like super militant unions, but even just kind of associations or um, some sense of a collective history. I mean, in some places there still is, like 
because people are very very inventive. One's not got to forget the creativity that exists. So in places like Barnsley and Durham, which were you know centres of the NUM, you know it was a very strong union. Actually, people have reinvented new forms of organisation that are more community based, are addressing people's daily life issues outside the workplace. You know, like in Barnsley, there was action around. Um, train fares that were being imposed on pensioners. And there's almost like a, a tradition of collective mm. thinking that can be tapped and, and given expression. So I think that an aspect of the take-back control is about actually um, helping people regain their, their self-confidence and their capacity themselves to exert control. And so I think it's about forms of organisation, forms of collective organisation, as much as about policy and... Because I mean, we're starting from quite a low level, mm. aren't we? I mean, it's not it's not like uh, it's not like there are, there are these structures really uh, substantially to to tap into anymore. So, I mean, in so in relation to the question I was asking just a moment ago, you know, it, it's not you know how are those democratic structures going to be reanimated? And uh, you know, I, I guess maybe where do we want control uh, that we don't or that we don't have it now? Or we, we can, I, th I think what I'm trying to say is that there are um, forms that people are, if we look at what people are actually doing, which I think is always the best place to start rather than sort of sucking a design out of our thumb. And actually people <laughs> are using um, and inventing uh, ways of extending what they've got. So, you know, another example besides sort of community organising is is local government. So, you know, we think of local government as completely emasculated, destroyed by Thatcher and then, and then by Blair. But actually, and it has been, but people have still got the creativity to, to use powers that don't seem very significant, but actually are, like procurement. There's Preston's a very good example of where... A very creative councillor has seen, you know, the disaster that the financial sector has meant for the city, you know, big investments that were promised and now have completely collapsed. So he's brought together the whole public sector in Preston um, to think about its spending and think about how its spending can be within the city. So it's a form of economic democracy. It's saying, look, the public sector, what's special about it is not, you know, that it's kind of somehow utopian or, or you know, democratic per se, but it's, it is formally under democratic control. So let's use the powers of spending to gain some control over the economy, to use the bargaining power of spending to increase wages, um, increase training, you know, insist that when they um, have a contract with the council, actually there's got to be decent wages paid, there's got to be apprenticeships, you know, so, so that's so, a mean, kind it, of control. Yeah. In, I mean, in a sense, you're, you're talking about a kind of extension, uh, you know, t towards economic democracy. And mm. yet, uh, I, I wonder if Christine has some thoughts on this, is, is you know, people... You know, until until very recently, certainly. I mean, I think there's a resurgence on the left of serious thinking about uh, alternative economic structure. But until recently, certainly, you know, there has really been a sense that there's not very much can change when it comes to economics. Mm. 
Um, so I have lots of thoughts about what Hillary was just saying, but I guess just to answer the question you actually asked, again, I think uh, the framing project has come up with some some quite interesting insights in relation to this that are quite relevant to um, the question of how we use this kind of anti-establishment, anti-elitist framing. Um, so again, this this work that we did um, looking interviews looking at how people construct the economy um, found that that this kind of sense that the economy is the way it is because it's run by elites and um, they rig the game in their own interests and ordinary people don't have control of their lives is really widespread and really does resonate with people. That is how people are constructing um, what's going on in the economy. But it doesn't kind of follow from that in a simple way that just tapping into that and saying, yeah, elites are running everything. You should be angry with elites instead of being angry at Im immigrants is going to make people kind of turn to the left because um, that sort of construction of the economy in those interviews was linked to a really profound sense of fatalism um, so that people didn't have, A, didn't really have any cognitive tools at their disposal to think about the mechanisms by which the economy works because it's been constructed for decades as this kind of really complicated technocratic thing that ordinary people couldn't possibly understand and that kind of just does what it does um, and can't be controlled. And B, that um, this kind of sense that elites are running everything um, was really linked to a kind of feeling that it wasn't possible to take control back from elites because they were so powerful and it was just inevitable that they're always going to rig things in their own interests. Um, so I think when we're using this kind of language of taking back control and trying to kind of reclaim this idea of building power and, and taking back control of our lives and the economy, it's really incumbent on us and really important that we're actually kind of offering concrete mm -hmm. solutions to people. Um, I think that's kind of the big lesson so far. I mean, this is something that we're going to go and test in the next phase of the project but that's what's kind of coming out of it for me is it's you know it's not enough for us to just name the problem we also have to be really making people believe that there are solutions and that you know that partly comes in having a big picture vision to offer for how society can be different it also comes from actually building power on the ground now and kind of picking battles that can be won whether it's on you know housing uh, on debt uh, on energy or you know things that make a real difference to people's lives and that demonstrate that we can build power collectively and can take on these elites and we can win yeah i mean because that's that's essentially what we've built our three strands around with our take back control events i mean number one is you know we want to take back control of the brexit negotiations which is essentially a proposition that look a referendum is a it's a one-off event it's, it's not the entirety of your political engagement or uh, democratic process the negotiations are still ongoing Theresa may has an incredibly kind of like shaky majority um with lots of rebellions coming from the tory backbenchers too. And we can exert a certain um, influence over this process if we are actually educated as to what a red, white, blue, grey, soft or hard Brexit actually means. Um, the second one is is the populist kind of like take back control from establishment politicians and economic elites. And it's what we were working on too, the idea that like um, there is this ingrained sense that there are a certain group, uh, La Casta in Spain, that by Podemos, who are like, kind of um, working for themselves and have rigged the system in their favour. So it's not it's not just the rich, really, that people hate. It's people that are specifically playing a rigged system. Um, and I'll push on that second one is really for kind of um, the Labour left and the Corbyn leadership to identify these people and then hammer them at every opportunity. Because as you say, like it's not just about identifying them because everyone already knows this. It's about actually 
saying you're going to do things about them and be convincing. I mean, my favorite example here is the maximum wages thing that Corbyn came out with one morning and then had rode back by lunchtime. But like all of these establishment economists were rolled out in The Guardian and elsewhere to say, this is this is crazy, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. Did polling on it and everybody was massively in favor of it. It's just hugely popular, you know? Um, and then a, a third strand on this is, you know, taking back control of our own lives. So offering kind of like concrete routes, which are absolutely kind of like um, rooted in the local community in which the event is happening to show how people can do something tomorrow. I mean, they don't have to wait for Westminster or politicians to, to, to do things. So it's, it's kind of a, it's an axis of education and empowerment. I think that's a, you know, just to build on um, what Joe was saying about uh the maximum wage, I think the really interesting question to ask ourselves on this kind of question of solutions and making people believe things can be different is what's our equivalent to Trump's kind of wall? Um, and this is something I was having a conversation with a friend about the other day um, and that we've been discussing again in the context of this project that, you know, you, you need kind of sort of totemic solutions that uh, have value you know, not just in themselves, but because they carry a bigger narrative and a bigger vision. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot more thinking that we need to do about figuring out what, you know, what those emblematic or totemic proposals can be um, that demonstrate that it's possible to do things differently. Well, I wonder in one sense if, if we've inherited a kind of political language which is actually rather old now. So the, you know, the, the enemy is the capitalist, which is, you know, I would agree with that. That's true. But the capitalist is no longer, uh, you know, the, the guy who owns the factory at which you go to work. And this, the system of kind of economic distribution has changed profoundly since the sort of uh, sort of late 19th century, early 20th century labor movement. Uh, and the way that we work has changed as well. And so how can we address that? Pick me, pick me. Um, <laughs> so I was thinking about this earlier when you asked that question about, you know, where do we want control where we don't have it? I think this is something we really need to engage with on the left in the ways that we organise, that the kind of sites of disempowerment and the, the sites of exploitation have changed profoundly, you know, in the last kind of 30, 40 years, whatever, um, as the structure of the economy has changed. Like it isn't just your boss or your employer that's exploiting you and screwing you over. And it's your landlord, it's your energy company, it's the payday lenders. Um, Ultimately, to a large extent, it's kind of people who are in the position they are because they own something, right? Because they own an asset, whether it's property, land, uh, energy resources that should belong to all of us, um, or just money in the case of banks and payday lenders and the ability to create money. Um, and so I think finding ways that we can build movements and organize people um, in those kind of new sites of exploitation against those kind of elites. And also kind of, I think that's a really a powerful place to start or building institutions that can carry a narrative about economic democracy and ownership where we actually can take back control of those resources, you know, so not just kind of organising to demand an energy price freeze, for example, but building, you know, municipal people's energy companies where we actually take back control of our energy supply and own it collectively so that that rent essentially isn't going to a small elite but is kind of um, being captured for the benefit of the community. I I suppose the one, my one contradiction with this, and I think it's a contradiction that we just kind of have to deal with and, and run with, is that we live in a time where you, you need to embody um, 
embody oppositional power and 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 name the enemy as it were um and and individualize the enemy whilst at the same time kind of like power and control in a, in a kind of like negative manipulative way being all the more distant kind of like abstracted and, and systematized you, you know what i mean when there was a monarch you knew if you killed the king it had a pretty big effect but now it's quite, you know what I mean? It's completely different. So this is a, it's just a contradiction when it comes to narrative that the left has to deal with. And, and I think it's one that we do just have to deal with. I mean, unfortunately, when this country killed its king, it lost its nerve uh, very shortly afterwards and, uh, and brought a new one back. But, you know, uh, one day we will get rid of the training wheels. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so, so my question, or my question about the thought of control itself, or, you know, the politics of control or the discourses around control um, is that I agree with what's being said about control, about the economy, but I know that when people talk about control or the way that control is deployed or has been deployed in the run-up to the Brexit vote and afterwards, uh, it, it usually implies some kind of territorial exclusivity and limitation, you know, borders or migration controls. This is what is emblematic of control in the minds of a lot of people. And 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 they're, they're pretty powerful articulations. Uh, and, and so powerful, I think, that unless we tackle them head on, the response will always be, well, you're avoiding the central issue. So what does that entail? Uh, are we going to have conversations about free movement? Are we going to have conversations about borders, uh, at these events? And, and, and how's that going to work? Uh, I think they will happen and they'll be very carefully facilitated. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're going to be, the events are going to be in a form where they will often comprise of large experience sharing sessions which will hopefully bring together people who are leave remain and didn't vote in the referendum i mean one of the big things for us as well is that like we recognize how damaging pernicious and completely like misrepresentative the leave remain binary and that whole kind of narrative is i mean it, it's terrible for especially the labor left because it divides the kind of like labor base completely and corbyn and the leadership can't do anything right on brexit whilst that remains the dominant narrative but it's also just totally mischaracterized as people's kind of like political and cultural positions and persuasions I vote remain does it define everything I think and, and who I am well I hope not anyway because <laughs> the cliche is pretty terrible um, but yeah so there's, there's conversations will be had I mean I, I suppose for me like control does have those connotations of kind of like limiting and territorializing things sure but the, the, the real attractive thing for it and, and I do think you can push you can almost push through those connotations by being propositional and, and opening up the term to something new is that it can embody both the kind of like the nostalgia for a certain kind of like social democratic settlement and Keynesianism that you're talking about some bits which are like for me quite uninspiring but absolutely necessary to a left program but also it can really embody some kind of like forward-looking 21st century socialist ideas I mean the universal basic universal basic income would be one like ideas which like don't imply a paternalistic state they don't imply that politicians or westminster or anybody else is going to do everything for you but actually that like individuals um communities but specifically individuals i think can be well they are a kind of like valid social unit but also they can be trusted to make decisions and i and i genuinely think that like kind of like post forwardist subjectivities that to kind of like appeal to people with them you you need to trust individuals in some certain sense and I, I don't think a lot of the kind of like these parliamentary left still does 
just on that question about territorial exclusivity as well, I think um, I think it's a really important one because you know the the backlash that we're seeing against globalization basically is kind of one of the big, if not the big, political stories of the times that we're living through, um, and I think the left really does need to. Um, have an answer or have a story to tell about that quite urgently. And, and the story that we tell about control has to be, again, can't just be a national story, has to be an explicitly international story. And the way that I've been thinking about this is I think um, we kind of need to expose um, the... Um, I guess the ways in, the, the ways in which the post-Brexit, post-Trump um, version of globalisation is actually still ceding power um, just, you know, uh, to capital essentially rather than to Brussels bureaucrats or to immigrants or whoever the kind of favoured enemy of the day is. Um, so, you know, if you look at May's uh, plan for post-Brexit Britain, which is basically that we're going to become a tax haven, right? It, um, we're closing our borders to people, but throwing them wide open to capital. You know, explicitly part of the strategy is we're going to slash uh, tax rates, we're going to get rid of regulation, social and environmental protections, workers' rights, etc. Um, well, she says she's not going to get rid of workers' rights, but it's, you know, open question how that's going to be squared with the rest of the agenda. But, you know, the whole program is based on... Um, disempowering ourselves actually of our ability to pass laws and raise taxes that are going to be of benefit to actually solving some of the problems that people are concerned about in order to attract footloose capital you know um and i haven't figured out yet a way of talking about these things in a way that you know is actually um not wonky and can resonate with people but i think that's the task um for the for the left is to have a kind of clear articulation of, of where we stand in relation to globalization actually yeah people are angry because good jobs have been offshored that's not because people are coming into the country it's because capital is too powerful and too footloose um, and actually Trump and May are not going to do anything about that and having a story about that I think is really vital. I mean, this is the the big structural question of our time, I think, in in one sense, which is you know, and and I what worries me is is how amenable something like a slogan like "Take Back Control" is to you know a, a man who who I I like, but who I think is wrong on, or who who veers towards a solution which is in, in intensively nationalistic, which is someone like Wolfgang Strake, who has just written this this um this this book on on sort of the end of capitalism, but whose whose arguments about globalization are are all to do with kind of regaining sort of national economic sovereignty and and the kind of reanimation of the nation state that's implied by that i guess my my question here is is is, uh, is that so is is about how how to make this sensible in one sense how to make it graspable how to make it uh something that feels like it's actually achievable because historically i mean in political institutions have generally chosen to protect the the kind of sovereign power of capital in the last instance i mean one of the stories of the the kind of post Bretton woods world is the gradual insulation of economic decision from democratic control and so so i mean uh how, how do you answer the 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 objection that taking back control would be nice, but it's not possible. It depends on which level you're talking. I mean, like I think on the local level, we've found that whenever we go talk to a local group, there are so many local campaigns that they're involved in and others which can suddenly be framed in this way in a, in a very, very kind of like um, useful and interesting fashion. Um, and I do think you can show many different examples of taking back 
control in, in you know in like an individual's everyday life but also in in your kind of like community social life i mean on a national level it, it it's a lot harder like uh, this narrative doesn't sidestep the problems of kind of global capital and having a leftist government or socialism in one country i mean it, it really doesn't um it would be a fantastic narrative if it did um but at the same time like I suppose what what appeals to me is that a lot of the narratives that the left have been relying on for a while, I mean, when I say the left, the Labour left, in a sense, are either um, insufficient or ineffective. So, like, anti-austerity, for instance. Like, anti-austerity has, has, has largely been successful. I mean, most of the country is, is, is convinced of it, um, perhaps not always in those terms. Austerity is quite like a, uh, an abstracted mm -hmm. term which doesn't really speak to people, but, like, most people don't agree with cuts in, in, in public services, um, and now neither do the Tories. Um, like, Labour, Labour has won that one to a certain extent. The other narrative that, at least internally, the Corbyn um, project's been relying upon is one of cooperation, unity, and togetherness, um, as if the PLP could get together and kind of like have a nice kind of like fluffy jamboree. Like it, it's, it's, it doesn't work as a political tactic for them, nor is it appropriate for the times. I mean, like we live in a, a moment where I think like, kind of like populist strongmen do really well, unfortunately. It's, it's a kind of like, it's a hard edged, um, a dangerous, chaotic time where all of the old certainties seem to be crumbling and nothing new has been built in their place. Like It's one that demands a, a narrative and a story which is more forceful, I, I suppose. Um, I mean, I, I know this is not coming up with all the answers, yeah. and I wish I could, but you see what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, I do, and I, I, I think this is, it is maybe, maybe a good time to talk about populism, um, to, to, to ask whether, is this a a populist project because I mean actually what you what, what you say is, is is quite you know is the most disturbing thing is that you know we've just had you know the the elections in in Uttar Pradesh where you know it was expected that oh you know a, a couple of you know a little time for an authoritarian regime to bed in and we'd see sort of people rejecting uh, rejecting it at the polls that didn't happen uh, it looks like Trump's support far from crumbling um, you know it, his support base remains very very strong that society's polarizing um but his support isn't isn't crumbling and you know the the core support of these authoritarians tends not to uh you know we, the the polls tell us that the hard right party in slovakia is now the most popular among the young so there's obviously an appetite particularly on the european periphery for this kind of thing um so is this project understandable if not in the same kind of political trajectory as these authoritarian populisms is it doing some of the same things um, for me, yeah. I mean, I think that was one of my um, pushes behind it and one of the things I think is most important about the narrative in that it can encapsulate um, encapsulate a notion of kind of like liberatory power, which can be kind of uh, embodied by a, a populist figure. Um, and I could think of many kind of like, I suppose, like spectacle-like symbolic populist policies trump's wall of the left as you will that could like fall under it i mean like you know confiscate one one that was mentioned to me by somebody who I name was like confiscating philip green's yacht i mean like why, why why hasn't that been suggested you know why why not move your offices outside of parliament for, for for instance like you know things like that but then on another level i do think and it's obviously goes back to everything christine and hillary have been saying that like this control narrative can really speak to people's 
daily experience and things that they can do tomorrow without having to wait for some, um, you know, kind of like great leader to do it for them. Because, I mean, I understand the problems with populism. I understand the kind of like anti-democratic tendencies of it. I understand that it in some ways disempowers ordinary, uh, ordinary people. And I, I do think this narrative, narrative can encapsulate some populist parts and some non-populist parts in a very productive way. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not convinced about the populism <laughs> idea because no, I, I think that um, it, one aspect of um, people's disempowerment is a sort of contempt that the political elites have for voters and for ordinary people, if you like, uh, a sort of presumption that they are not intelligent, they're not able to kind of run their own lives, etc., and I think populism, left populism doesn't necessarily sort of overcome that. I mean, it can lead to a similar, well, a similarly disengaged politics where you're not actually um, building people's self-confidence and supporting them. So I've always felt that Jeremy's appeal is not that sort of left populism that is often talked about, whereby people invest their hopes in a leader, a kind of empty signifier, and you know they look towards them. Um, but rather, you know, he, in a sense, like Tony Benn, is all the time about pushing power out. Yeah, I think you know, I think there's a. I sort of agree with both of you. <laughs> um, I think the left needs to be populist in the sense of um, making a very clear and obvious break with the political and economic establishment of the last 30 years and promising change and promising to empower people. Um, and I think, you know, lessons from the rest of Europe, uh, we, I think maybe we mentioned earlier, Podemos and La Casta, um, has been that, you know, where that tide of right-wing populism has been successfully pushed back. It's generally been by a kind of strong um, left-wing populist movement. That doesn't mean that we need to be populist in the sense of investing all of our hopes in some kind of strong, charismatic leader. Um, and absolutely, I think, you know, Hillary's absolutely right that um, an agenda of, a left agenda of taking control has to be about genuinely building new sources of collective power from the bottom up. And, you know, Hillary made the point earlier that we've lost a lot of those sources of collective power that we maybe used to have um, through unions or whatever else. Um, you know, this is not just about trying to persuade people to give power to a different set of politicians, but actually kind of starting to build some of the infrastructure um, that can empower people in their daily lives and that can then become the basis for a successful political project. Um, in those some of those new sites of exploitation we were talking about, so whether that's renters' unions or kind of um, people's energy companies or you know whatever it is that gives people the experience, the lived experience of actually taking control of something that matters to them, but that is also kind of linked to an explicitly bigger political project, which it has to be in terms of what you were saying earlier about you know can we really take on these big you know transnational giants that have the real power? You know clearly we can only do that through some kind of bigger political project. We can't be naive and think that it's possible to do it purely through. Um, kind of grassroots action, but that you know they're clearly not mutually exclusive, and they shouldn't be. Uh... And also, just a point because I think it's important to clarify about Spain that actually the strength of Podemos, you know, I mean, it doesn't come primarily from the anti-Caster stuff. I mean, I'm not that's not unimportant, but crucial has been the fact that it's it's come from a really powerful grassroots movement that was developing alternatives in the squares and where it's been most successful is in a city like Barcelona which 
is a city full of, you know, these micro sort of alternatives. And the leader there, you know, is a powerful leader, but has come from a movement of direct action. So while I think this identifying of the enemy is crucial, I think, you know, it, it, as important and in a way a necessary condition is the developing of this this sense of collective confidence. And that needs I mean, a movement. Is, a, is, a, is, a, is an interesting word, isn't it? Because I, I, that's the thing that's actually most striking is that I can think of very few times in my political life where actually I felt that the movement I'm part of has a, actually a real confidence in itself in its ability to do and achieve things. Let, let me ask, I, I've got two questions, both of which are related to this. One is, one is related to, to the question of leadership. But the first one is, and it seems to me to, to be a contradiction here, it seems to me a, to be a difficulty. And it's to do with time frame, right? I mean, the, the thing that was successful about take back control in, in the run up to the referendum was that there was a single event that it, and it was soon that they were going to, they were, you know, that, that it related to. And it seems to me that in all the conversation here that there are two time frames operating. One is quite an intensive one that says, like, we are, we're really in the shit. Right. We've, we've really got to really push this forward. We've really got to really start getting out there and making this work. And the other one is thinking in terms of you know, a, a complete repurposing of the organs of the state. It's thinking about political educational processes, which take, you know, years, which take, you know, you know institutions which take years to build. So... Is there a potential contradiction here in, in the way that, that this, this goes? And, and is there a problem in terms of developing a strategy to deal with both of those things? So small questions. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, this is a 20-year project, right? You know, you're talking about kind of big... We're in the middle of some kind of big epochal um, change, which at the moment looks like it's going in a... A terrifying and scary and fascist direction and, and kind of trying to steer that into a, a sort of progressive post-neoliberal direction. Like for me, it's, it's a 20-year project. It's an epochal project and it is going to take time. I don't think that's mutually exclusive with having a kind of political project and a movement that is um, addressing the kind of urgent questions of now, you know, like the Brexit negotiations. Um, my friend and colleague Dan Vokins likes to say, which I find really useful, um, what do we need to do today so that we can do more tomorrow? And that's what this is about for me. And I think it links to your question about confidence. Um, what are the battles that we need to be picking and fighting and winning today that not only give people the confidence we can change things, but that kind of unlock the space for further change, you know, because they're tipping the balance of power in some way. Um, so I'm thinking things like, you know, the kind of Uber core case recently, Uber drivers, delivery drivers getting organized and actually kind of challenging some of the ways in which they're being disempowered and exploited by big companies like Uber um, or kind of the, you know, the private renters movement that is actually starting to establish itself as a real political force and win and is winning, you know, legislative changes on renters' rights that are going to give them a stronger position to bargain against landlords. I mean, you know, these are small things in a way. Um, but I think when you look back at the history of neoliberalism and the history of the Thatcher government, you know, this is exactly what they did starting from what seemed to be to them pretty much as much of a low base as we're starting from now. They had an idea of sort of roughly where they wanted to get to and, and a sense of what were the strategically winnable battles right now, and which were the ones that were not winnable, like, for example, the NHS, you know, which they knew that they, they just they couldn't privatise the NHS because people wouldn't wear it. But, what you know, what were the other places where they could start to break down the sources of union power or state power? And I think, you know, that's the way that we need to be thinking much more smartly and strategically. I don't know who we is, 
experience in this, you know, as someone who's not particularly immersed in labour politics, but kind of identifies with the wider movement. You know? No, but I think that's an important question as well. And one of the things that's been on my mind as we've had this conversation is the slippage between, um, you know, the audience that we're trying you know, that we're thinking about here about, you know, it's surely not just people who are members of the Labour Party, because, uh, well, I mean, people feel about the Labour Party in all sorts of ways, and not all of them very friendly. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, two questions on, on, on that, then on political power. One is, you know, does this mark a, a, a kind of sea change it's this whole period you know the last couple of years mark a sea change in the way that the left is thinking about power because you know for, for a good couple of decades we, we we were all about you know we heard a lot about changing the world without taking power we heard a lot about the kind of the the evils of representation and all and those critiques seem to me to be pretty well founded actually and particularly of the kind of you know left parties and institutions that dominated throughout the 20th century one of which was the labor party um so, one, are we seeing a change in approach to power? And two, you know, is this tour acting as a funnel just into the Labour Party? And, you know, really? <laughs> um, no, I mean, like the, the, the presence of the... The presence of the Labour Party, I think, is important, um, and especially the presence of Labour Party, uh, Labour shadow ministers, just in the sense that you have some upward direction of influence as well as the downward direction of influence, if that makes sense. Um, but no, it's not It's not just a Labour Party tour in any sense, despite what the press made of it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but on your... What was your point before? Sorry. sorry. Uh, the question of power. Yeah, I mean, like, I, f I find the developments of it... So my political history is actually quite short, probably about only three years or so. But like, I, I've found even the developments within kind of like my left political trajectory on this question, like, exciting because I moved from one um position of, of kind of like a fetishization of um or an, or an over fetishization of kind of like direct action and bodily action and you know putting your body in 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 the way of um police or state forces or whatever to a position now where like um and, and a kind of acceptance that that was the limit of politics um and we could only exert our power in a kind of like um and an almost like a blocking like anti way um to now a, a position where we're considering how to take power, um, how it's problematic when you take power, um, and, and, and what the hell we might do with it if, if we actually get it. Um, I've realized in my life it means I sit in offices a lot more rather than on pieces of grass, um, which is both good and bad, I think. <laughs> um, but like it, I, I find it thrilling. And, it, and it's why like I, I, I again want to push the like notion of control as a narrative, because I think for a long time that I have to seem power essentially not in a Foucauldian way. So it's a seen power in a, has always been manipulation and oppression. It hasn't seen power in the kind of like, it's, it's potential liberatory aspects. Um, and left politics because of it has been quite, you know, quite dour at times. Like we, we should be pushing a politics that's like exciting and libidinal and, and liberatory and all of this. And that's all tied up with an individual feeling empowered and be able to and exert themselves both as an individual and as a collective, right? Um, and I feel like we're moving more towards that. Definitely not just in Labour Party. So I don't feel like that when I'm at a Labour Party branch meeting. <laughs> That's not what I'm claiming. I mean, speaking with a slightly longer political history. Sure. Yeah. 
if people if we were on television, you could see my white hair. I mean, a little bit of white hair, anyway. So I I think I don't really agree that there's been this. The left has always had this sort of change the world without taking power. I mean, I come from a tradition which particularly has been influenced by feminism, which is that we. Um, we need to work in and against the state. So we need a sense of power that recognises um, power as transformative capacity. So that our power, we discovered in the women's movement that we had power to create uh, uh, as distinct from the power of domination, which has been the tradition in social democracy where you gain power over the government and then you, you deliver what you think people need. And I think that we need the power of government, we need dominant power as domination, as a resource for power as transformative capacity. And so that's what feminism was about. You know, you you built the, the power of the women's movement, but then you did engage in and against the state. You, you gained some position in local authorities that then released resources for centres for battered women or for better health care or whatever. You needed those public resources, but you needed to change how they were administered. You needed to change the relations of the state. And um, I think that tradition is maybe being a bit sort of rediscovered in in new ways. I think there was a moment probably where, you know, the sort of anarchist and direct action tradition was dominant because... You know, representative democracy had become so empty, so void. You know, there's this whole, you know, question of the void. It had become an empty shell, um, and I think that now there's an attempt to almost occupy those empty institutions and um, recognise that the franchise and so on wasn't completely useless, uh, but it had been emptied precisely because the masses were entering it. So power was taken away and moved into sort of corporate boardrooms. Yeah, I mean, so so what, what I suppose none of us or none of you have really grasped at is, is, is the Labour Party amenable to this from below? I mean, you know, is, is how much is the Labour Party really going to be uh, receptive to taking back control? Um, it's... A long project. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the the language of control has slipped into McDonald and Corbyn speeches at certain points um, over the last six months. I mean, it's slipped into many people's speeches, but it has slipped into theirs, which is good. I, I mean, uh, the 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 project of um, taking over the Labour Party and um, properly instituting left power in the Labour Party because we we don't have control of the party at the moment. It's, it's rubbish. Like you you have a left leadership that is essentially marooned um, with uh, a centre to right wing majority in the PLP um, and all of the levels of bureaucracy basically still being occupied by the right and the right still being able to manoeuvre far better than we can at branch level and CLP level like, you know not for the it's not that left activists aren't working hard within the party at all but the right use various bureaucratic and procedural measures to outflankers and to smash us at every opportunity and it's quite depressing sometimes um so yeah i think 
we've got to try. If if we had if we had a proportional system, then sure, my argument would be different. Like I would be back in a surgeon party, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be very exciting. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I suppose my, my, my question maybe maybe it's more productive to think about this in terms of the kind of three areas that you outline when we're talking about taking back control, which is, uh, you know, the 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 and the first two are really about politics at a relatively high formal level. So uh, control over Brexit negotiations and a kind of insurgency against a, a political elite or an establishment. But but the third of those is, is you know, it, about controlling people's everyday lives. And, you know, that's quite an immediate everyday level where conflicts are lived and are often the most pronounced. And the, so the question is, how, how is it really possible for the, to unite them in the same uh, movement or campaign or, or, or project, partly because the priorities of formal politics often eclipse or run counter. So, you know, it's, it's struggles like kind of anti-privatization, you know, the, the demands of trade unions, uh, the, the protection of tenants, migrant solidarity. And this is often in direct conflict with local administration. So so my question, I, I suppose, is, is are these, do these things gel i mean I, I think i think you know one of the things we've been gesturing towards is that they have to in some way but but uh, those conflicts are going to be real and is it possible uh to to deal with them without just sort of brushing them aside um i i mean i think a a, a healthy social movement will be a kind of like vib vibrant and always conflicting ecology not uh, everything under one banner i'm under no illusion that any organization least of all the labor party is the answer to all of our problems um and i think you're probably right like it's unlikely that the labor party flying the labor party flag is going to do all of the kind of like um uh grassroots outreach um community on the ground work um the hundreds and thousands or hundreds or thousands of various community organizations up and down the country are attempting to do at the moment i would love to see it do more and i do actually think this is one of the ways labor could build up support in the kind of like quote unquote brexit heartland where its support has been kind of like slipping for the last 10 to 12 years is to actually like instead of just doing a get out of the vote a couple of days before a by-election or an election is actually to get into the heart of the community and put some money behind food banks or put some money behind different community projects, um, behind cultural projects as well. Like cultural renewal in various areas of the North is really important and is something that MPs such as John Trickett are taking seriously. Uh, so this is interesting for me, I guess, as, um, as someone who kind of came of age politically in the kind of direct action movements that Joe was talking about um, and has never sort of particularly identified really strongly um, with any political party or, or with the Labour Party. Um, I think, and, you know, in in total honesty, finds the level of factionalism in Labour profoundly disheartening. You know, we talk a lot um, in the circles I move in about progressive alliances and I always feel, you know, if Labour could form a progressive alliance with itself, that would be a start, right? Um, but I think... You know, we we need a much more sort of permeable membrane, I guess, between different political parties and also between political parties and social movements um, and the kind of uh, projects that can fight and win battles in people's communities on a day to day basis and the institutions that are kind of trying to to take and build that power and institutionalize it on the national political stage. I guess the thing that that gives me some cause for optimism is that I do feel like there's um, a generation of, of activists that kind of 
maybe also came of age in, in some of those movements that placed a lot of emphasis on on horizontal organizing participation that were not massively politically tribal but that kind of increasingly recognizes the need to take and build power and institutionalize that power but institutionalize it in a new and a different way you know build kind of new and better institutions yeah i mean this brings me i think to my last major question which is it which returns to the matter of power um and and the classic left formula for systemic change is you know, you literally stop the circulation and reproduction of capital. You know, you gum up its works until it's forced either to concede to a demand or like it, or, or it breaks entirely. And, and the precise orientation of that and, and how it works and, and, and what the relation of that is or, or, or whether it is, it's subducted into a kind of formal politics and electoral politics, that will depend on your ideal vision of the, uh, of the world. But that was the leverage. You know that was that was where your power came from, right? Is that that it, when it came down to it, you could put a wrench in in the works and, and stop capital circulating and reproducing itself. You know, or you could stand outside the doors to the factory. That that's still possible, um, but it, it, it's certainly less possible in the UK now than it has been for a long time. So, what kind of leverage can we possess now? <laughs> How depressing. I just didn't think that was the question you were going to ask. <laughs> I was getting a metaphor in my head about wrenches ready, and then, <laughs> and then you asked that. Well, I think we've already touched on that in lots of different ways. I think Christine did in her list of of um, actions that you know are sources of hope. So, I mean, take the Uber drivers or the delivery drivers. I mean, capital depends on them. So when they say, hang on a minute, this is unacceptable. We're being treated with complete indignity and we're going to refuse. We're going to go on strike or we're going to, you know, insist on being treated as human beings. And, you know, and they're beginning to win. And, you know, similarly with the rent, the, the private rent renters movement, you know, landlords depend on them. And if they start refusing. So, I mean, it's almost like that kind of process of, action where there's injustice and where we can refuse i suppose for me like that that but those levels of power um they, they differ depending on your your economic psychological social situation and um and i mean i say psychological quite deliberately because their mental health crises in in, in especially my generation are, are huge um and that's why i'm more interested in I think, God, I sound like like a, a Navarro automaton, but like policies such as the universal basic income, <laughs> which like which are essentially at heart, and and people who would consider themselves further left than me always laugh when I say this, but like essentially at heart, like autonomous policies, you know, they're, they're a policy which you enact, um, which then allows like the wonderful and creative flourishing of, of individuals. It's an interesting question, you know, where are the areas where we really have the power to, you know, where the, the reproduction of the system depends on us and we can kind of refuse our consent to that. And I think like Hillary was saying, that's where the, the Uber drivers example is really pertinent and interesting, both because right, it's a, a classic case of, you know, the Uber drivers are providing the labor, they're providing the cars, you know, they are providing all of the, you know, almost all of the, the capital and the labor that, um, that actually keeps that system functioning. But because Uber owns the platform, 
platform, Uber is extracting all of the value and finding ways to empower people in those kind of sectors to organise collectively so that they are able to refuse in a way that they're not empowered to do individually, you know, that they can be more powerful together than they could be alone um, and finding those kind of sources of collective power that we can, can build to resist. Um, I think is really important. Um, and that also, you know, um, I guess Uber is a good example because um, its ownership of the platform, yeah, I think it's something that we really need to think about, including in the context of UBI, um, is this kind of question of power over technology and, and what are those kind of raw materials or commodities that enable the system to, to reproduce itself in an economy that's increasingly automated and digitized. Okay, last question, quick answers. Um, what does success look like for take back control, both immediately and in the medium term? Um, immediately, I just hope people turn up to these events. No. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good. Um, in the medium term, it would be seeing the narrative adopted by various individuals and institutions, both from the grassroots right up to the top. Okay, yeah, no, I think immediately, or in the short run, it would be... Um, there being such, maybe as a result of these meetings, such, demo, such a democratic surge uh, <laughs> on the Labour Party that um, there was a recognition that the Labour Party had to unite behind Jeremy and, and, and John McDonnell and, and the sort of new direction. And so we have a united party that is um, giving support to... Um, this new generation, who will presumably also influence older generations, that's committed to seizing power now, using the kinds of things that Christine has been talking about, people who are getting organised and gaining collective confidence. I mean, almost equivalent to the sort of atmosphere there was after the war, um, where people were voting Labour not because it was the wor the least worst thing or out of just class loyalty. It was that they had recognised through the war that their work was invaluable to society. Their intelligence, their capacities were of public value. Uh, far be it from me to tell you what success looks like, Joe. <laughs> um, so I think the thing that would be most interesting f for me is, firstly, I guess, if not the usual suspects turning up, which, as I understand it, is kind of part of the idea of these events to try and reach out beyond the kind of echo chamber. I know it's become kind of a cliche to say that the left needs to get out of its echo chamber and out of our bubbles. But I think, you know, more than ever, we do need to be organising across boundaries, you know, leave, remain across political, racial, geographical boundaries. Um, so that would be the first thing, um, and then, and then I guess also secondly, a sense that um, that has the potential to build into something lasting, into kind of new sources of of local power um, and political power, and a sense of energy and momentum, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, ambitious and plenty to look forward to. There, the first take back control event is when and where? Uh, the eighth of April in Croydon. And people can find out more at? Uh, TakeBackRealControl.com Thanks to my guests for joining me and keep your eyes on NavarraMedia.com as Take Back Control takes to the road. In a couple of weeks, Navara will be running an event in London on universal basic income, on automation and on work and maybe the abolition of work, what that might look like. 
Uh, that's on April the 14th and will be really exciting and there will be a great party afterwards. So if you head over to the Navarra site, there should be a ticket link under this podcast. And while you're there, you can explore the rest of the site too, which will give you all sorts of things to read and listen to and watch and think about from Brexit to populism, to visions for the future, uh, to trade union organising and organising to win. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.